1: Welcome to this Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. Um, For those of you who are uh, new, anybody new here that i Okay, welcome. This is a uh, Bible study that is the culmination of a number of years on the Pentateuch in preparation for the Gospel of St. Luke. Because there is no true understanding of the New Testament without the Old Testament. And while we have not certainly covered all of the Old Testament, we have covered one of the most important part, which is the Pentateuch, and that is Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, um, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. So we're coming up to the end of that cycle. So last week we started with the um, with the prologue and with the overview, and maybe we should actually go over this uh, sheet so you could get situated and understand how we're going to approach this, uh, this study out here. Um, it's you know, color-coded for you to be able to follow through. You can see it's divided in three parts, and they're fairly easy to follow and understand. Part one is the uh, overview and the prologue, which we're going to cover tonight. Part two is really the bulk of the study, which is the second discourse of Moses. Uh, that will carry us from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 28. And then part 3 is the closing discourse and the poem of Moses. So, fundamentally, Deuteronomy is Moses' commentary on, not Leviticus, but on all that had transpired in the 40 years in the desert since he led the Egyptians out of um, I'm sorry, since he led led the, uh, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. This is a very important element to keep in mind. It is Moses' commentary, and obviously the Holy Spirit is speaking through him because this is an inspired book. Why is that important? Because here is a man, this is a holy man, we know from the... Transfiguration of our Lord, that Moses is in heaven, if from from nothing else. In fact, we also know from the letter of St. Jude, that the devil and St. Michael contended over the body of Moses. We know he is in heaven. Here's a man who was transformed and shaped by those events, who walked with God, and who is giving us a commentary on this journey. Do you think we can learn something from him? So, if nothing else, if we were to apply the moral reading of Scripture, which we're going to do tonight, that is, look at Deuteronomy not necessarily as the walk of the Israelites in the wilderness, rather, look at the wilderness as your own life. And the Israelites as being your soul. And Moses as being the voice of the Holy Spirit. And now apply that to you. If you were to do just that, you would see that it will help you situate yourself vis a vis God. This is a man who knows human nature, this is a man who's seen it all, this is a man filled with the Holy Spirit. On all these accounts, we ought to listen to him. And so, if nothing else, if for another reason, we should be listening to what Moses says. Now, obviously, there are other reasons, such as the fact that our Lord quotes mostly, I mean, quotes quite a bit from Deuteronomy. The fact that Moses appears on the Mount Transfiguration. You know why he appears on the Mount Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, right? Because... Many of the things that Moses did, Jesus will do. We call Jesus the new Moses. right? Moses led his people from a world of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness and temptations, into the promised land. Jesus Christ leads his people who live in the slavery of sin, through the water of baptism... Into this wilderness and onto eternal life. Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Jesus went up the mountain to proclaim the Beatitudes. Moses established the priesthood. Jesus established the priesthood. Moses fed people manna. Jesus Christ feeds us Himself, the Eucharist. Moses struck the rock and brought forth water. Jesus says, I am the living water. Moses was the intermediary between Israel and God. Jesus Christ is the supreme intercessor for us before God. And on and on it goes. So for no other, if, if nothing else, if you set aside the moral reading and you look at Christ, looking at Moses... Helps you understand Christ. Why? Because Moses is a man. And oftentimes for us, it's a lot easier to understand another man than it is to understand God. So, those are the reasons why we are spending time on the book of Deuteronomy. So tonight, we're looking at chapter 1, verse 1 through 440. Obviously, in this one hour, I am not going to be doing verse-by-verse verse commentary on the Scriptures. I don't even have time to read to you the verses. So, I hope that you keep this agenda that I passed on with you, and that you use it to read the texts that are marked for the next lecture before you come, so that you be acquainted with the text we're going to be studying. That is important. The other thing I will again reiterate... I strongly suggest you take notes because it doesn't register. I'm going to speak an hour. You're probably going to remember three minutes of everything I'm going to say. Our brains are not able to absorb in one shot everything we hear. Taking notes, going back and looking at them will help you really reap the fruits of the the time you're spending here. All right. Now, in the beginning of chapter 1, Moses speaks of the Torah, that law, as the teaching. He's imparting a teaching on the Israelites. That is important, because from the get-go, his perspective is that this Torah, which is given in Leviticus, mainly, in the main, in Numbers, and to which he's going to add is a set of rules that covers civil and ritual procedures it's a rule of life that is giving the, that that the israelites received it is also good for pro, for prophecy for teaching and for reproof it has a moral exhortation live right live a good life according to god's law and it has a didactic narrative The purpose of it is to help them understand. You will see if you read Deuteronomy, Moses repeats himself. When it comes to the exhortation, obey the Lord. doesn't say it once. doesn't say it twice. It says three times. He repeats it. Why? Because he knows that we forget. This is something he learned out of his own experience. People forget. So he repeats it. Teaching is probably one of the better way of characterizing the Deuteronomy. But not as in scholarly teaching. Not as the way you would study mathematics. This is imparting wisdom. And in fact, there are a number of echoes with the book of wisdom. Between the Deuteronomy and the book of wisdom. Which are important. So... Leviticus was the book of the law and the book of worship and the book of civil law. Leviticus is the book in which God is instructing the Jews on how to worship, how to treat one another, how to live, how to be people of God. It's a book of instruction. Deuteronomy now takes these laws 40 years later, right before the Israelites are about to enter the Holy Land, the Promised Land to conquer it, And turns it into a teaching. A teaching of... A lived teaching of that law. How do you take all that that you learned in Leviticus. And now turn it into something you're going to live by. That's what he's trying to do here. It is therefore instruction par excellence. Those of your teachers. Any teachers here? Okay. It is very illuminating to read the book of Deuteronomy from a teacher. Standpoint, Because you have a supreme teacher speaking. And if there's one thing you will notice about him, there is no gray in the teaching. He doesn't leave you in any kind of ambiguity over what to do, what not to do. He's clear. Another important element. Deuteronomy is not a comprehensive commentary on Leviticus. Moses does not take all the laws in Leviticus and goes to them systematically, trying to comment them out. He doesn't do that. He's got something in mind. There's something driving him. What do you think this is? What do you think is driving Moses? Think about his own life. Don't think of Moses now as the leader of Israel. Think of Moses as the man reflecting as he speaks to the Israelites about his own life. Because God told him, You're not to cross. You're not going to go into the promised land. He knows he's at the end of his life. God told him, You're going to die here. So, this is a man who's also reflecting on his life. How did his life start? Where was he when he started his life? He was a prince. In Egypt, he was the son of Pharaoh, adopted. He was separated from his kinsmen. Then he became a murderer. He killed a man out of anger. And then he became a fugitive. He ran away. And then he found himself a posh life, really comfortable. And God came to annoy him. No, 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 don't send me. Find somebody else. I have nothing to do with these people. Selfish. And then God took him and transformed him into a saint. So, even if he was to reflect on his own life, how would you characterize broadly his life? You can see there are really two pains. And they're very clear. One, where Moses was living aside apart from God. And another, that he was living with God. What was he doing in the first one? He was what? Yeah. You can almost use the words of St. Paul here. You can see echoes of the life of St. Paul. St. Paul followed the same track. St. Augustine, the same track, right? And so, the key word in all of Deuteronomy, from a teaching standpoint, is obedience. Obedience. Moses insists on obedience more than anything else. Obedience. And we're going to see why. So, the, these four chapters divide into two clear sections. The first one is a retrospective on the 40 years sojourn in the wilderness. Ranging from chapter 1 verse 6 through 329 almost three chapters, a retrospective on what had transpired during these years in the wilderness. Selective retrospective. He doesn't cover everything. He's focused on specific events because he has something in mind that he wants to cover. Let's see what that is. First, he starts from Horeb. Where is Horeb, and why is Horeb important? Horeb is the mountain of God. It is the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments, where he received the instructions on building the temple. It is a central event in his life and in the life of Israel. What happened around that? What happened when he received the Ten Commandments? what did the Israelites do? The golden calf. Right? They rebelled against God, built their own golden calf and worshipped it, and had an orgy as a result of that. Right when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments. So it is a very important event in the life of Israel. From there, all the way through the years of wilderness until now, That's the focus of that first section. All the details that Moses bring about serve to illustrate two principles, two opposite principles. And it's really simple. You can see Moses the teacher. One idea at a time. Doesn't go about telling them three different things. Just one idea. One. Here it is. Mistrusting... You might write that down. Mistrusting and disobeying God lead to disaster. Mistrusting and disobeying God lead to disaster. Trusting and obeying Him lead to success. That's it. Simple. I'm going to repeat it. Mistrusting and disobeying God, two different things, not the same. Two different things. If you mistrust and disobey, it leads to disaster. 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 (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Lead to disaster. Trusting and obeying, two different things. Not just one, not the other, both. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Lead to success. So Moses brings about a series of events that the Israelites went through to bring that point home. He's going to show them that that's what happened. He's going to show them that's what happened. Now before we go into the details of this, I want you to stop for a moment. And I want all of us to reflect on this These two simple principles as they relate to our own life. And perhaps we might want to consider these four questions as part of a daily examination of conscience. And if we're not doing a daily examination of conscience, if we're not taking five minutes during our day to look at what happened during this day, perhaps we might want to consider starting that. Here are, here are the questions. Have I trusted God today? Have I trusted God today? And if so, when? Be specific. Be specific, Bob. Be specific. And so, when? Have I obeyed God today? And if so, when? Have I mistrusted God today? And if so, when? Have I disobeyed God today? And if so, when? Four simple questions. It shouldn't take us 20 minutes of torture to answer those questions. It should take us about five minutes. This is not about racking our brains it's just about standing and looking at our day-to-day. In fact, tell you what. what don't we do, just do, do this right now? just want you to close your eyes. Put your pen down. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Just close your eyes. I'm going to show you how we do examination of conscience. Close your eyes. Here's how you start. My dear guardian angel, I ask you to illuminate my mind and my heart so that I may see myself as God sees me, according to his holy will. Please show me what I've done right and where I need to improve for his greater, greater glory. That's it. You start right there. You invoke your garden angel to help you. He's going to illuminate your mind because that's one of the key functions that the angel rejoices in doing, being able to help you examine yourself. Now, have I trusted God today in everything I've done? How would you know that? Well, let your garden angel help you. But there are situations. Were you anxious? Was I anxious at one moment or another? Was my soul disturbed? Have I allowed fantasies, bad thoughts about what could happen and not happen to enter my mind? Have I entertained them? Was I scared of, of some imaginary threat? Was I given a task I did not like today? And did I understand that this was God's will for me? Was I pleasant with all those who were around me? Was I angry? Did I snap at somebody? That's it. You can open your eyes now. We've just done an examination of conscience. It doesn't take very long. But it's the beginning. It's the seed. It helps you See this. If you do that every day, if we do that every day, we're at least going to standing before God and saying, I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. Help me. God always responds to this kind of prayer. You will never, ever be rejected if you go before God and sincerely ask Him to help you improve your life, your spiritual life. Now, trust. And obedience are not the same thing. I can trust you to drive my car. I can trust you with my finances. It doesn't mean I'm going to do everything you tell me. Yeah? Make sense? Not complicated, right? Trust and obedience, two different things, two different faculties, two different things. Trust is about knowledge. Obedience, right? trust, is an intellectual thing. I trust you because I know you. To the degree that I know you, I'm willing to trust you. It's an intellectual faculty. That's what's being exercised in us. Yes? Obedience is which faculty? The will. Bingo. The will. The intellect and the will. Two different faculties. Both must be exercised in order for us to live a proper life before God. Now, when we have a disordered life, these two faculties are not always in harmony. They can be fighting each other. I might trust you. I don't want to obey you. Right? Or I may, I may obey you out of fear, but I don't trust you. Yeah? So that might be the case because we're human beings and we're broken and we're sinful. But now we're talking about God. If I'm obeying God without knowing Him, trust, I'm just being fearful. If I trust him, but I don't obey him, I'm being lazy. You see that? So, here's a simple conclusion of all of this. Trust and obedience do not come naturally to us. They require training. So, they require training. You see that? You see that? They require training. We're so willing to be mistrustful. We're really good at criticizing people. The critical thinking in us is incredibly powerful. All of us. Oh, so-and-so did, so-and-so did. You see what so-and-so did? We're really good at that, right? Well, notice when you are exercising the faculty of criticism, unnecessarily, because it's not your job, because it's not out of charity, because it doesn't serve somebody. You are collaborating with the devil to learn disobedience. Learn the big scheme. Understand the big game here. He's more than happy to tap you on the shoulder and tell you what this other person is doing wrong. Because then you are being trained in disobedience. You understand? Now, if some of you were in the military you would completely understand what I'm talking about. A soldier in the military is not going to say, well, sergeant, I don't agree with you. Let's have a committee and sit down and think about whether we should do this. Yeah? Okay. There is an aspect of that that has to happen in our own life for obedience to work. So, all that I'm trying to tell you is that if you're not training to be obedient every day, you will not be obedient. Now, how do you train to be obedient? You need to have... A place to exercise, right? You have to exercise. Can you create that? People who are in religious orders have spiritual directors who train them. Most of us lay folks are not in religious order. So how do we get trained in obedience? What do we have to do? We have to ask the good Lord to send us situations that require obedience. Right? That's how it happens. So, if you're willing to obey and if you're willing to trust, not enough to say passively, Yeah, yeah, I'll trust and obey. You need to be trained. You have to recognize, I don't know how to do that. So, therefore, you and I need to be trained. So, hence, we have to be put in situations that require obedience, that require trust. So, God sends those situations to us. Now, what do we do usually? Did you see what? We miss the gift. We don't pay attention. God is talking to me in a situation like this. Because I'm not in conversation with him. It's all about me. I'm talking to me. And the devil pats us on the shoulder and would say, good job, son. Keep at it. Understand the big game. Understand the strategy so you know how to win this war. It's a battle. It's a spiritual battle you're engaging in. Trust and obedience do not come easy. They require training. Especially if some of you, especially you men who have your own businesses, you men who have your own businesses, or you're in position of power and authority, your soul is in danger, is in a daily danger, because you have nobody to give you orders. You're used to give orders. How are you going to learn to obey? Who's going to teach you? Your wife, wonderful, yeah. So you know, the, this is the blessing of marriage. Your wife, yes, or your children, or people around you, or your parents. But be aware that when you are in position of power, if you sought that power, your soul is rebellious to obedience. You need to know yourself so you may know God, St. Augustine. Yes? All of us. That's very important. You're absolutely right. If you want to know God's will and follow his will, the problem is when we say those words, they're so poetic and beautiful and noble and heroic that we miss the grind. But if we say, I want to obey. So here's, here's one simple way for all of us to remember it. I strongly recommend that you take up saying daily the litany of humility. The litany of humility. All right? The litany of humility. All right, enough. The, I, I'm, I'm stressing this point because it is so central to the book of Deuteronomy, but also to, so, so central to our lives. It is an illustration of how this book still applies and still speaks to us today. hasn't changed. Now, here's how the Israelites expressed these beliefs when they trusted and obeyed. Let's look at specific examples. Offering prayer and sacrifice before battle. Offering prayer and sacrifice before battle. Those prayers and sacrifices were meant to express Israel's obedience to God. So God would say, you go into battle. Notice, trust and obedience is required when He says you go into battle. But what they would do is to offer from their own wealth, sacrifices and the spiritual sacrifice of prayer to express their trust and obedience. Okay. How many of us think of our daily battles in those terms? By carrying the ark and sacred vessels into battle. Because the Lord is the one who leads the battle. This, my friend, is the Central reason we do processions. Which we Catholics have completely lost the meaning of a procession. We think it's a cute little thing. You know, to take the cross and just walk outside the church. The Israelites never processed because it was cute. They were following their Lord into battle. A procession is meant for battle. You see if you are in the pro-life movement and you want to close a clinic, you find yourself a good priest who'd be willing to take the the Eucharist into procession on the street around that clinic. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not about superstition. Taking just the Eucharist and walking around it is not going to do anything because God doesn't work this way. It's about faith, trust, and obedience. But we have lost quite a bit of that trust and obedience. That's what they did. So it's manifest. It's visual. It is present. You can see somebody trusting and obeying. It's not the little secret thing only. It has a certain presence. And we're called to do that. By sounding trumpets to be remembered before the Lord. And then the camp had to be kept fit for God's presence by avoiding all forms of impurity and defilement. You could not have anything that would defile the camp, and we've done a long study, a lengthy study in Leviticus, where we talked about that. Translation you guard your soul. You wanna trust? You wanna obey? Guard your soul. What does that mean? No improper language. You do not watch improper shows. We do not spend time. We do not waste our time needlessly. We're careful with whom we associate. We're careful how we entertain each other. Women, we're careful how we dress. All of these are the physical form, physical manifestation about obedience. Men, custody of the eyes. Careful where we look, what we look at. All of those things are our way of saying to God, I want to trust and I want to obey. So you see, it's not enough to express an intention in your prayer. You need to put it into effect. I have to be conscious of my behavior all day long because I am standing before God. At any moment of my life, I'm standing before God. He sees me, like Blessed Stephan used to say. God sees me. It is living in this eternal presence of the Lord that expresses my trust and my obedience. Battles were undertaken at the command of God, issued either on God's initiative, as expressed through the prophet, or in response to an inquiry by Israel, through a prophet or oracular means. So this is how they truly lived uh, trust and obedience. It was for them a matter of life and death. You see that? It was about battles. It was a matter of life and death. So for us, trust and obedience is a matter of life and spiritual death. Our soul is at stake. And it has to be cultivated every day. When we wake up in the morning, we're prepared for battle. We gear up. During the day, we are, we're going to take a moment at noon or at one point, maybe read the gospel, say a quick prayer, Ask God to remind us of our presence before Him. At night, we're going to take five minutes to sit down, close our eyes, think about what happened during our day, thank the Lord for all the benefits He has given us today. See, we don't thank God enough. That's the the third part of this equation, trust, obedience, and then gratefulness, being grateful. We don't thank God enough for what happened today. If you're worried more than you're thankful, something needs to be worked up in your spiritual life. You're alive. God gave you another day. That's a gift. Yeah? Okay. You've managed to do some good today. That's God's gift for you. You've done some good. You're here. That's a calling and that's a gift. You have families. You have people around you. You've seen at least one beautiful thing today. A flower, a tree, a bit of blue sky. That's a gift. Are you thankful for all these things? Are we thankful for the little things that God does in silence for us today? So, at the end of the night, we do the little bit of examination of conscience like we said. We thank God for all His benefits. We ask Him to forgive our sins. Any of the sins we've committed. And we ask Him to prepare us to stand before Him should we not see another day. That is part of the trust. Because all of us behave as if we're eternal. We're not going to die. If you talk to anybody, nobody dies tomorrow. Nobody's dead. Everybody's alive. But we know reality is otherwise. And we're always acting surprised when somebody died. It surprised us. as if It's just not going to happen. We're all going to die. There was a man, I think St. Teresa of Avila um, would, uh, brought this up, where he would have his tombstone in front of his bed. And he would have, on one side, he would have his name, John Doe, born such and such a date. And every night, he'd take a little piece of paper and he would write that day. Died on, put it there. And he would just contemplate it before going to bed. (coughs) Here's the simple question. Are we ready? Are you ready to stand before our Lord for your personal judgment tonight? If you're not, what must you do? So, that's how we live our life. This is how the liturgy of Israel was structured. This is how the monastic life is structured. This is how our life should be structured. Trust and obedience. This is what the book of Deuteronomy is actually stressing in different ways. Another important aspect I want to bring up to your attention. History is important. History is critical. This is what Moses is doing. He's reminding Israel of their history, of what happened during those 40 years. And he is commenting on them and imbuing these events with a spiritual significance spiritual significance your personal history your personal life from the day you were born till today if you think about it if you take the time to sit down and think about it if i sit down and think about my life i can see that it's filled with miracles because i'm still alive And I know there are multiple places where I could have died. And I'm here. That reflection on my life makes me aware of God's providence and therefore helps me trust Him and helps me obey Him. You can do that if you were to study the history of the Catholic Church. Many a Catholic today... Is convinced that we're living in apocalyptic times, that the difficulties and the challenges we're facing are enormous. But if you actually sit down and study the history of the church, you would see that there are times that were much, much worse than today. Much worse. That would fill you with a sense of peace, sense of trust that God actually knows what he's doing. History, therefore, is very important. Study your history. Study your people's history. Study the life of the faith in the generations past so that you can truly understand how the faith has been lived. So that helps us and puts a perspective on our lives today. And that's what Moses does. He goes through a survey of all the events that have happened since Horeb for 40 years. And it brings it to the attention of the Israelites, reminding them of what has happened and how God treated them. Religious belief in the Bible is based mostly on Israel's experience of God, the Old Testament, rather than on theological speculation. This is such an important point. This is such an important point. Semitic minds are not drawn to speculation. Semitic minds are drawn to concrete living. Perfect example, exhibit A, the apostles in the boat with Jesus. Jesus says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Speaking spiritually, a leaven, as you know, lifts up the bread, the dough, right? Makes it grow. Therefore, if the leaven is bad, it can poison the whole dough, and what you have is poisoned bread. That's what he's telling them. But you notice he's using an image here, a metaphor. How do the disciples receive that? St. Mark, the Gospel of St. Mark. They looked at each other and they said, we have no bread. Concrete. St. Thomas Oh, we have seen the Lord is risen. Unless I put my finger in His hand, and my I will not. You understand? Therefore, it's a mistake to um, it's a mistake to treat the Bible as a book, which is important in and of itself, separate from the whole historical dimension in which the Bible was written. It's the lived experience in the Bible, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, that teaches us what we need to learn. They believed because they saw. And their belief was experiential. It was based on praxis. And so must our belief be. So here's another question. Do you understand God's life in God's work in your life. Do you see how God is working in your life? Do you understand what God is doing today in your life? Do I take time to sit down and think and say, this is, those events have happened and this is why. God wants to teach us. Therefore, He wants to illuminate our intellect. If we sit and reflect God eventually shows us the meaning of our life. And our life has a lot of meaning because God does not create trash. But we have to see it through His eyes. A good movie that you may want to watch. Exercise caution if you want to let children 13 and younger to see it. But it's a very good movie to watch from that perspective, the movies titled The Five People You Meet in Heaven. So the notion of heaven is not proper, but nevertheless, it has a profound reflection on the meaning of life. But that's what God wants. He wants to illuminate our minds and make us understand the purpose of our life. Moses. And if you read, again, I encourage you to read those four chapters, you will see there is no doubt in his mind. This and this happened to you because you disobeyed. Simple as that. Notice how far we've drifted from this. If I happen to meet a couple who are contracepting, I know that they're going to have rebellious children. They have rebellious children and teenagers because they've contracepted. If I meet a man who's a workaholic, I know his children are going to disrespect him. Well, that doesn't take a prophetic mind to think think this way. But he's not going to gain. He's not going to receive that privilege of being respected by his children. He's a workaholic. He's going to lose this disrespect and probably end up dying alone because he is a workaholic. If you do this, this will happen. If then else, God doesn't complicate things for us. We cover them up. Because we don't want to disobey. We don't want to obey. And we don't want to trust. So we come up with excuses. But it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. I'm going to say something to you that is very controversial. You won't hear it said out there. But I am from the Middle East. I can speak for the Middle East. If today the Christians in the Middle East are being hit hard... It is because of their sin. Period. We're not willing to say that. We're all innocent. No, 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 no,, no, no. It's not about what we do to others. It's about what we didn't do before God. When we contracepted, when we didn't have children as we should have, when we didn't trust in Him, when we went after money and greed and wanted to imitate the nations and become like them and abandoned the covenant. That's when God comes after us. Why? Because we are his people and he's a jealous God. That's exactly what Moses told the Jews. By the way, this is Deuteronomy. I'm speaking out of this book. Now think about it for a second. If God treated Israel back then this way, Israel back then was his chosen people. That's how he treated them. Right? Moses told them, we sent 12 12, um, scouts. They saw the land. They came back. God said, go and conquer it. Right? They were supposed to spend only a couple of months in the wilderness. They were supposed to go and conquer the land. They refused. They were afraid. They were afraid. I mean, we can give them excuses. We can excuse them. They were afraid. We would be afraid too. Right? They were afraid. What did God do? You will stay here until all of you die except for two of them. And that's it. Joshua and Caleb. That was it. That's how he treated them. Now think about it for a second. We receive the Eucharist. We have the Son of God in our midst. Should God expect less of us or more? My point is that we don't go through this reflection. We don't humble ourselves and say, Okay, Lord, we have sinned before you and before, before our brothers. and Please forgive our sins. We're more afraid of the Muslims than we are of God. We fear the Muslims more than we trust God. That's it. That's it. God doesn't expect us just to be kind and good to others. He didn't have to have his son die on the cross for that. Jews are good and kind to others. Muslims can be good and kind to others. Hebrews, I mean, um, um, uh, atheists can be good. But that's not. The, he expected us to be saints. Saints. We busy ourselves becoming doctors and lawyers and went after money. There's nothing wrong with being doctor and lawyer, by the way. I'm, not, I'm just mentioning those two because they're very common among our kin, right? And went after money. There's nothing wrong with doing this, but we forgot what we were supposed to do, who we are. So, God nudges us. says, okay, you want the nations? To the nations you shall go. So, we are in exile. Why do you think we're in exile? What is Exile. Read the Deuteronomy. It's a curse. Exile is a curse by God. But we don't want to look at it this way, right? Because obviously none of us deserve that. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not, um, I am not singling out people from the Middle East. Right? I'm highlighting that point to bring about the importance of trust and obedience. That just as when we are disobedient and we don't take holiness seriously, God will punish us. But when we turn around and we humble ourselves and we say we're sorry, He covers us with graces a thousandfold more. That's how He is. That's what Moses says in those four chapters. He reviews the relation between God and Israel in the recent past. Parallels similar historical surveys at the beginning of the treaties between suzerain vassal states in the ancient Near East. This is really an important aspect. In the Near East, when a king would come and conquer a city or a little kingdom, he'd make the king of that city or kingdom his suzerain, a vassal, somebody who obeys him. And then, when they set up a treaty, that king, the king, the conquering king, king will come and will list all his victories. The victories of that king and his conquest would be listed as a reminder to the one who has been conquered of, how, of the strength of that king. This is what Moses does. He essentially reminds them of everything that God did for them. Then turns around and reminds them how they responded. Yeah? If we take that into our own lives, we kind of remind ourselves what God did for us and how we responded. That opens our hearts to contrition makes us more thirsty for confession, which is so necessary for our daily life, and helps us, help us fulfill our destiny, becoming saints. Hmm? Without these things, without these spiritual exercises that we do day in, day out, we're like living corpses. Our life has no meaning. The salt in our life is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going to dwell if the temple, where the temple of God, is dirty. We need to clean it regularly, conscientiously, right? That's what's so important in our daily life. We have to take God seriously. So Moses reminds them of all of this. And then from what he then does is that from section 1... Verse 6 through 2, chapter 2, verse 1. He goes into the details of all these events, which I'm not going to cover for you right now. He's basically telling Israel that you disobeyed when God commanded you to go into the promised land. Then you decided that you're going to go on your own. And God said, don't, because I'm not with you. You ignored him, went into the promised land, got beaten. And then the condemnation came. You will live here until all of you die before you can cross over. The next generation obeyed God, listened to his voice. And now Moses lists six kingdoms through which they crossed successfully. Three, three, without battle, because these are the Ammonites. And so essentially it is the, the, their kin the children of Esau. Remember, Esau is the brother of Jacob. So when they passed through that land, they were not supposed to touch anything because God gave these people this land. And then after that, the children of Lot. Two different lands, which were essentially the children of Lot. Those are kinsmen, and God gave them this land. And notice the language, God gives land. We don't own land. God gives it. God takes it. According to his will. So, and then there were three other kings that they fought successfully and conquered them by God's command. Why? Because they trusted and they obeyed. Now, notice, when when we say trust and obedience, we have to work. So, St. Augustine says, pray, pray as if everything depended on God. Pray as if everything depended on God. And work as if everything depended on you. Pray as if everything depended on God and work as if everything depended on you. Okay? They had to do that as they crossed these lands. And Moses reminds them of that in this section because his intent in, um, to teach them that there is a real importance in meditating on these events of the past and conforming your lives to God's will as events unfold. And then he switches his discourse in chapter 4 because he is inclined. He knows that people may not be inclined to obey but must be persuaded. We're not inclined to obedience. We're inclined to disobedience because of original sin, because of our own desires. He knows that as a good teacher. And so he reminds them of the following. The laws are just. That's a hard one. The laws are just. God's laws are just. They secure God's closeness. He reminds, men, reminds them that these laws make Israel unique and that observance will earn the admiration of others. Really interesting. Observance of these laws will earn the admiration of the others. Right? We, we, all of us, have a, we're all secret admirers of the Muslim when they take their little mat, wherever they are, get down on their knees and pray. We all have that kind of secret admiration for these people who are not afraid to display their obedience to God before men. We don't have to do what they're doing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting we do that. But what I'm suggesting is that when it comes to matters of principle, of faith, of morality, the way you behave with others, you show forth the light of Christ that is within you. And people will be attracted to that. Like kids to a good bread. The smell will attract them. And hopefully you can lead them into the church this way. Right? The laws have logical reasons. They are the will of the one true God and a prerequisite for well-being. But above all, all of that, Moses reminds them of the most difficult aspect of obedience. You know what is the most difficult aspect of obedience? I'm going to close with that. What do you think the most difficult aspect of obedience is? Okay, you're getting close. Pride is sort of the opposite, right? But what is the most difficult aspect of obedience when you really want to obey? It's love. It's love. There is no true love apart from obedience. Look at the life of Jesus Christ. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he say? Father... Let this cup pass by me. He knew how hard this was. But not my will, but yours be done. He obeyed the will of his father because of love. You see, the hard part for us with obedience is we don't love. We don't love enough. Obedience is a school of love. You want to learn to love, you obey. You'd be a hypocrite if you said, I love God and I don't obey. Absolutely. Absolutely. You would be a hypocrite if you said, I love God and I don't obey my husband. I love God, I don't obey my wife. Obedience requires suffering, right? But you can start by obeying because you're afraid. You know what? I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to do this thing. That's wonderful. Hey, that's one, if you get that, that's wonderful. Rejoice. It's a beautiful grace. If you can do it out of fear of hell, that's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. We're so hard-headed. We are so hard-headed that if you can obey because of the fear of hell, it's a wonderful grace you've received. It's not perfect, but it ain't bad. But then, if you can obey with no regards to yourself, but for the Beloved, now you're reaching the perfection of the saints. That's what we're talking about. This is what he expects of us because that's the grace he gives us. You understand? So, read those four chapters slowly and apply them to your own life. See in these battles the trials that God sent your way. He expects you to obey. When there is a trial coming to you, be not afraid. That is God's way of calling you to battle in His name. Trust and obey. Be not afraid. See those battles as the trials of this life, leading you to enter the promised land. But God, in His goodness, did not send you a man, Moses. His only begotten Son is leading you. Who are you to be afraid? Who am I to be afraid? That's what God wants from us. Let's close with a word of prayer and we'll take some questions. Very good question. Sometimes it's really hard to discern. You're in a gray area. How do you know if it is your will or God's will? Whenever you're in a situation such as this one, I I encourage you to reread the passage of Genesis where Jacob contended with the angel. He contended all night. That mysterious battle between Jacob and the angel is truly indicative of the kind of spiritual battle we must be willing to perform. Sometimes, and, and then so listen carefully what I'm going to say because it's a little complicated. Sometimes God wishes for us to obey when we don't know. Sometimes God wishes for us to obey when we don't know. It's really hard on us. You're in a situation and you want to know if you should go A or B. And you cannot tell. And you're standing there thinking, I'm wasting my time. I'm not listening to God. I'm not. You're going through this pain. You're contending with God. And in doing so, you're showing Him A great obedience. Because you're willing to put up with the pain and not move away. Another really good place to meditate on is the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus went to the apostles and asked them to stay awake and pray for me for an hour. They did not know. They did not understand. And they were really in distress. Yet he demanded that of them without full explanation because they could not understand at this point what was what is coming the resurrection be a... Abraham between the time he had Ishmael to the time that he had Isaac 13 years went by without God talking to him it could be years well I, yes of course i mean that any one of us who had was forced to leave his homeland leave the place he lived and grew to go to a different land is exile. Well, these are those you're talking about the Muslims, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's going to be hard. Yeah. He never said it's going to be easy. Here, some of us who work in different places have the exact same issue. Right? It's not just over there. But that's not what I'm talking about. See, all that I said was that when upheaval happens and hit the situation, people are exiled and forced to go in chaos. And you've got to understand that we have to ask ourselves a simple question. Why is that happening? And it's not always because these people over there are bad. In fact, you read the the scriptures, it's almost never the case. It's because of Israel's disobedience that this is happening to you. So it starts with us. At the grand scale, at the scale of nations, at the scale of an individual. You meet people who who life is a mess. They're in debt over here, and they have this issue with this thing, and they have to leave this place. and And you know... The reason why their life is in the mess is because God loves them. Now, that sounds strange, right? What is the the greatest form of wrath that God can display towards somebody? No, loss of something. No, that's a grace. Yes. Give them everything they want. Give them everything they want. That's His wrath material yeah of course usually they're not after spiritual stuff no no i'm talking about people out there right who are yeah i don't believe in god what is the greatest wrath that god can put on those people give them everything they want so that they say there is no god i don't need god where do you think they're headed no the devil has no, no such power we give too much credit to the devil. The devil has only one power. He can suggest. That's all he can do. He can whisper in your ear. The devil cannot hear your thoughts. The devil cannot know what you're gonna do. The devil cannot get you into hell. He has none of those powers. He can whisper. Absolutely, to get you to distrust God and all that. He can whisper, he can influence you. But that's it. Now if you give somebody everything he needs, he's satisfied. He's content. He's got it all. What do, you, what, what do I need God for? Right? Give me government, a socialist government that'll take care of my needs, take care of the old people, give us all pensions, like in Sweden, make our life materially really comfortable. I don't need God. I'm happy. Yeah? Remember, I mean, yeah, you're right, I'm happy. No, no, no. It's a good government as far as our standards are. The problem is, I am now, turned the government into my God. The government gives me everything I need. I don't need God. Remember, when Jesus says wide and... No, no, no. Wide, not narrow. Wide is the way that... And easy is the way that leads to perdition. When you hear those words, don't think a bunch of people in shackles... And then walking on no, no, think a party, a carnival, a great fiesta, people partying their way into hell, yeah, then narrow and difficult is the way, then what do you have? a guy who's kind of trying to climb these mountains and his hands are kind of bloody, and then he's all by himself and eating roots and and whatever else he can f- right, yeah. God's paradox. So, He sends difficulties your ways, He loves you. Because that teaches you to depend on Him. He makes, He frustrates your desires, He loves you. Don't get too attached, you're gonna leave all that behind. Yeah? He sends things to humble you, He loves you. Basic level, totally. And that's because God's law permeates everything the physical, the spiritual, all dimensions of our lives. So yes, indeed, when you see somebody gambling, when you see somebody going through difficulties, you can pinpoint those moments where that led him there. And sometimes you cannot even tell them because they cannot listen. Jesus said himself, you have eyes, you do not see. You have ears, you do not hear. And in some cases, he told his apostles, "The, the mysteries of the kingdom of God were given for you to understand, but not for them. He didn't explain it to them. And that's because, that's because, It's all about love. You have to love Jesus. You have to be part of the family. You have to belong to Him. It's about love. So, that's really important. This is part of Deuteronomy. In the wilderness, God was really hard on Israel. These people died in the wilderness. Couldn't even get into the Holy Land. Couldn't get to the Promised Land, right? But through it all, He was with them. Never forget this. He was with them. If God is with us, when Paul says that... He doesn't have in mind you standing here and Jesus standing right next to you. And you're stuck. He has in mind the wilderness. God with us. Emmanuel. It's the walk in the desert. That's Emmanuel. God with us. Not as in kind of romantic relationship or something of sorts. It's God with us as we cross the wilderness. As we go through trials. God is with us. But we have to be with Him. We have to have that relationship with him, and understand that through the difficulties and trials and miseries of life, God is giving us gifts. That's God's gifts for you. Uh, I need to read what the fathers have said. Generally speaking, you will find very few pronouncements on who go to hell. And that is because the order of justice belongs to Jesus Christ exclusively. He gave to his church the order of mercy. And that's why the church canonizes people in heaven, but the church does not canonize people in hell. Sometimes you wonder, maybe they should. But, ah, why does he stay with them? Why is it that Jesus here in our churches does not, when we walk in, in a state of mortal sin, right? Smite us dead on the spot, like he did with the sons of Aaron in the tabernacle when they used the strange fire, right? Why doesn't he do that, Right? That's why sometimes you say, thank God, I'm not God. Right? Why is it that he doesn't do that? Most of, many of us wish that he just, you know, zap him. Take these people out of this church so I can worship in peace. Right? But back to what we were saying before, if he's merciful with me, he's merciful with them. So we have to reverse our thinking and say, thank God there are people like that. Because if he's merciful with them, he's better be merciful with me. (laughs) They're my insurance policy. (laughs) But that's the truth, you see. You see, that's what's so important. We're all one family. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. And we are all standing before his majesty. And we have to stand in awe and recognize who he is and trust him. That he's the Lord of Lords, Lord of history. And that his will will be done. And that he runs history day after day. And He's not an absentee God. And He has a plan for the Middle East. We do not know it. But believe you, Him, He's got a plan. Trust and obey. And you will see the glory of God. Right? God bless you.